Hey everybody, that was the new one from Molise, one of my favorite bands. I am Bo Ransdell, and this is Hero Hero Go Show. Uh, as always, uh, we are inevitably, inevitably, uh, inevitably, inevitably delayed. Uh, so apologies once again, and and I'll be honest with you, a little bit of the issue this time was a little bit of uh, paralysis of analysis. Uh, we introduced a new segment. Uh, that you will hear this very episode. And to be honest with you, I wasn't sure exactly where to place it. And I kept moving things around and it never sounded exactly right to me. And, you know, we'll see. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, drop me a line over on the uh, Facebook uh, Hero Hero Go Show page and let me know if you think it's a little too discord. And we're having to swap some stuff out and move things around and uh, all of that. And, and it still feels a little unsteady to me. So we'll see how it goes. Before we get started, we're actually talking about uh, a movie called Exte, Acuste, uh, Hair Extensions, a Sion Sono film. And the one of the stars of the film is a guy named Ren Osugi. And Ren Osugi should be familiar to you if you've listened to this show before. He has appeared in uh, The Cure, or Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, he was in Miike's audition. He was in um, another Sono film that I'm trying to remember which one it was. Uh, at any rate, um, yeah, he's been all up and down. Spiral, that's what he was in. Um, he's been all up and down Japanese horror films uh, for years and years and has done some work in the U.S. and, and all that stuff. And um, it's one of, one of the great things about trying to delve into Asian horror cinema is that you become at least passingly familiar with a number of, uh, of actors who repeat through those films and you start to develop uh, a relationship with them, much like you do uh, watching any movie star. And Renosugi is one of those guys that when you see him, He's always energetic and unique and a little weird. And uh, I, I think that it's a real shame um, to have lost him. And, and, you know, he's been in, I mean, literally hundreds of films and television appearances. So it's not like the guy isn't leaving behind an enormous body of work. And, and that's great. Uh, unfortunately... Uh, you know, he was only 66 years old when he died, though, and, and that still feels too young. Um, so he died just a couple of days ago, and I wanted to start the episode uh, with a mention of, of Mr. Asugi, uh, who will certainly be missed. He uh, just a tremendous, tremendous talent, and, and as we talk about him in this film... Uh, I hope you can hear the affection I have for his performance in this movie. It is so unhinged and wonderful. Uh, and uh, it, it's a, a sad bit of circumstance that we uh, we have to say goodbye to him, even as we look at one of my favorite performances uh, from uh, Rinasugi. So without further ado, so here's how all this is going to break down, folks. Uh, there is a plan. So we're going to talk about uh, the movie, uh, and we're going to talk about Sion Sono a little bit up front, and then we're going to take a break. We're going to talk about Godzilla, 
and then we're going to come back and and wrap things up and and talk a little bit about uh, about Fallout and what makes the film interesting. So, uh kick back, grab a drink, uh have a tall glass of water and uh, and let's do this. So, Sion Sono is a strange and perverse force in film. And I say that with the utmost respect and and admiration for the man. Uh, He was born in uh, Toyokama in 1961. His his parents were teachers, but Sion Sono had a rebellious streak that asserted itself almost immediately in his school years. Uh, So much so that Sion Sono ran away from home uh, as a teenager and found himself in Tokyo, where very briefly, he was a member of a cult. And one can imagine that a a group railing against the modern Japanese social structure appealed to Sono, though he left the cult in fairly short order. He he didn't stick around for long. Uh, His calling instead was was an artistic one. And by the time he was 17, Sono had already published several poems in esteemed literary publications like Eureka and Gendaishi Teko. Uh, he's been compared for his work in poetry to the so-called God, uh, father, not Godfather, real father of modern colloquial Japanese poetry, a guy named Hagiwara Sakutaro. And it, it was, it wasn't until 1985 when Sion Sono revealed his first film project, which was titled appropriately enough. I am Sion Sono. Uh, it's a 30-minute short film that was literally nothing else than Sion Sono staring into a camera, reading his poetry. And th- the film premiered at uh, a film festival called uh, the, the Tokyo Pia Film Festival. And it, you know, it, it, I'm sure it registered on someone's radar, but it wasn't until two years later in 1987 that Sion Sono came back to the Pia Festival with a film called Otoko no Hanado, which won the grand prize at that festival two years after his his first film uh, appeared there. And it's important to note that Sono as poet is essential to his nature in a way that informs Sono as filmmaker. Um, He is an artist who is intent on communicating with emotion. And and words carefully chosen. He often bucks descriptions of his films, though, as being poetic, which to Sono became synonymous with beautiful, uh, which in common parlance it, it kind of does in, in Japanese. Sono wants to make it clear that something can be both poetic and ugly at the same time. Sono's second full feature was a, a movie called The Room. In 1994, not that The Room, another The Room. And it's a black and white film about a killer searching for a room in a in desolate Tokyo space. And it traveled all over the place on the festival circuit, didn't do great at the box office, but, uh, but Sono's work continued in that vein. It was very experimental, it was very art house. Uh, there's some Pink Ega titles thrown in there, like, you know, most filmmakers at the time in, in, uh, in Japanese film. You know, he wasn't above it. He did a little titillation uh, kind of film. And uh, there, there are a couple of movies in that mix that are, are kind of worth mention, if not viewing. There's one called Keiko Desukedo, 
which is about a waitress who's who's dealing with her father's death that's really interesting there's one called Dancon the man from 98 that's uh about a serial killer and a gay police officer um there's uh OCM4 or 0 centimeters uh quartered quadrupled um which is about a colorblind man uh whose condition is cured and seeing color blows his mind and you know so th- he's always been pushing towards something lyrical if not poetic on this very show we've talked about the movie suicide club uh which came out in 2001 and that movie includes 54 schoolgirls committing suicide simultaneously sono even credits fukasaku kenji uh who of course did battle royale and sono was always trying to push limits and you really don't need to look any further than movies like strange circus, which is this incredibly dark film, uh, which we may do on this show at some point, but it involves uh, pedophilia and, and incest. And I mean, it's just all this horrible stuff, but there's something so visually compelling about it. And there's a point being made too. He's not, they're just to be daring, although there's part of that too. He's uh, he's got a rebellious spirit, you know. He wants to show you stuff you've never seen. And the l- last movie I'll mention before we get into uh, X Day is a movie called Love Exposure, which is a nearly four hour film, I think, that involves nuns and upskirt photography, and it's in a weird way, a movie all about how innocence in modern society has become juxtaposed where, uh, organized religion and religious figures are really the figures failing Japan. Whereas, uh, someone like this, you know, athletic ninja, like upskirt photographer, um, is kind of the, the force of good. And, it takes a long time to get around to that point, and there's a lot of other stuff that goes on. It's a, like a crazy fight film, and there's gangs, and you just have to see it all. It, it, it's amazing. And Sono uh, doesn't necessarily consider his movies A films. He doesn't mind being labeled a B movie di- director. And, and he himself once said, and I quote here In the past, all action and sci fi genre films were considered B movies in Japan. But as time passes, perspectives change. And so this all leads to X-Day because Sono had done a lot of experimental films, including things like Suicide Club and or Suicide Circle or Suicide Ring, however you know it, that movie. And had done things like Love Exposure and, and these crazy artistic expressions. And so at the time of X-Day, what we're dealing with now is Japan just on the tail end of the international horror explosion. You know, things like Dark Water and uh, The Ring and Juan and, you know, all the big names that you knew before you ever listened to this show. All those movies had come out. And in terms of Sion Sono, it was now his turn to sort of take the reins of a big-budget mainstream horror film. So he chose for his first mainstream film, uh, X-Day, 
which is a film about haunted hair. And we'll get into the plot here in just a minute. But it's worth noting before we dive into any of that, Sono was being groomed to be another Miike or another Kurosawa, not Akira, but Kiyoshi in this case. Um, and that's not something that seems to appeal to Sono all that much. And so he creates X-Day. And let's just get into this movie. It is, uh, of course, called X-Day colon hair extensions. Um, it is a movie that is decidedly about haunted hair. <laughs> so it's a silly premise, but the movie takes itself surprisingly seriously, mostly. But even from the beginning, we know that things are a little bit silly because we, we open, join me if you will, on a, a shipyard in Japan where a couple of guards are taking a stroll through the docks and they're talking about winning the lotto and one of them is complaining about how long his nose hair is getting and already Sono is, you know, winking at us a little bit. And they see a guard who who calls over the these two other uh, wandering patrol guards and says, hey, there's a container over here that smells pretty rotten. And inside said container they find that it is crammed full of human hair. And one of them even says, Hey, uh, I bet it's for hair extensions, which are fashionable among the girls these days. And as they debate whether the hair smells bad in bulk like that, or if it's just uh, a stinky hair versus, Hey, it's a bunch of hair and that's what makes it stinkies. Um, the two guards we followed, see a face emerge from the hair uh, which is a dead girl holding a bell on a ribbon. Enter Kazumi, played by Rin Osugi, uh, who is a delight in this film. He is a watchman at the local morgue. And once the doctor leaves, and you know this is where they brought this body that they discover in all the hair, uh, and Yamazaki is all about hair. He is, uh, I b- believe what is called as a, a trichophiliac, which is someone who derives erotic pleasure from the grooming and and uh, stroking of hair. Just hair in general just really gets the engines going. And hey, who am I to judge, really? If that's what does it for you, fine. Just don't go as far as Yamazaki does in this film, which is going through all the bodies in the morgue, opening up the body bags, checking their hair, and rejecting them if their hair is not good. And then he finds a corpse whose hair he adores. And he begins to shear it as he imagines the heads of the girls that he rejected earlier, as well as the girl that he's, you know, currently shaving, all staring at him. And the girl whose hair he's cutting rolls a tear. And then opening credits. Like, we get uh, a little bit of a delayed opening credits just so we can have... This opening sequence where we establish Yamazaki uh, as being a weirdo and that there is a corpse found in hair. And already it's absolutely bizarre and also, I think, wonderful. So we are then introduced to Yuko, who has fallen asleep once more practicing to be a, a beautician, a stylist. And Yuko is played by Chiaki Kuriyama, 
who you would recognize from Kill Bill and Battle Royale. Uh, her roommate is Yuki, who is played by Megumi Sato. And Yuki wakes her up, and there's this whole thing where they talk as if they are characters describing their own actions. And it's it's an interesting bit of wordplay that Sono uses here. And he's constantly reminding us that we're watching a movie in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. And this is one of the more subtle ones where the characters interact with one another as if they're in a movie, as if they are characters who are aware that they're in a film, even though they're kind of playing at it. We know that, Oh, that's actually true. And it's really an interesting technique and But we get some backstory where we know that Yuko's late for work. She's been working at this salon for a couple of years. Uh, which, by the way, the name of the salon um, is named after uh, a French serial killer. So that kind of gives you another hint at uh, Sono's sense of humor. So while Yuko is going to the salon, Yuki, the friend, uh, is working to support a dance studio. And Yuko is biking to work. She She's narrating the journey to work. And again, just reemphasizing this idea of, hey, we're in a, in a play of sorts. We're watching a movie. We're being told a story. And as she's driving along, there's a very pointed shot of her hair, which is very long and very beautiful, I would say. Uh, well done, Chiaki Kuriyama. You have great hair. Um, at the salon... Yuko is uh, arriving and then she's greeting all of uh, her co-workers and we, you know, kind of get some stereotypes in there. Um, they And this is also where she reveals like, oh, we're using overly explicit dialogue and that's what she's adopted. And then eventually that all falls away as other people show up and we see there's like, the tough lady stylist, there's the gay guy, a couple of others, and then there's uh, the owner who's, uh, you know, middle-aged lady uh, who's running the shop. And she tells them, again, this is an incredibly Japanese thing to say, that the customer is giving them their time, not the other way around. And that they should always appreciate the customers, uh, not as a source of pay, but as someone who is giving their time uh, to them to to perform their stylist moves. And then we are treated to a shot of Yuko's sister, who is a little bit sleazier, a lady, and she is dragging her kid uh, down the road. And the kid says, hey, this isn't the way to school. And the the mother, who we don't know at this point is Yuko's sister, but doesn't matter, it is, uh, gives this kid a swat. And already we're like, eh, this mother... Not cool. So once we uh, we leave those pleasant figures, we go back to the morgue. And we're opening up the corpse found in the container. Uh, you know, like doing an actual autopsy. But when they do uh, open the container, it splits open and reveals that there's hair stuffed inside. And that her organs and her eye have been surgically removed. So the theory from the cops is that she was kidnapped and then she was sold to harvest her organs. And Yamazaki uh, is super pleased when the cops finally screw out of there. And 
he sees that there is a bell still tied to her wrist, her wrist rather. There is uh, one thing about this makeup that I dearly love is that the eye socket where she is missing an eye has a bunch of hair coming out of it, which I think is real cool. Uh, so again, don't watch this movie if you've got any sort of uh, reticence in seeing some ex- somewhat extreme imagery at times. Uh, this is one of Sono's tamer films, but it ain't without teeth. And in the process of, of stealing uh, the, the body away, Yamazaki notices that her hair has already started to grow again. And just like we saw before, we see another tear roll, and this time it's rolling from the hairy eye, which is real unsettling. So, anyway, we, we're going to leave Yamazaki for a second and then cut back to Yuko, who finds Yuki, her roommate, with the girl we saw in the street, uh, whose name is Mommy, who is asleep on the couch. And the mother is named Kiyomi. And this is, uh, as I mentioned, Yuko's sister and has basically just dumped the kid on Yuko and Yuki for a few days. And Yuko gives it back to her. She's really harsh in telling her to take care of her own kid. But then uh, mommy overhears this and she's sad, but then says, Hey, can I please stay for a night? And Yuko is like, well, of course you can. And, you know, you can sleep on the sofa and go right to bed. And Kiyomi, uh, Yuko's sister, takes off so she can go hang out at club so she can drink and smoke with a real sleazeball, along with the other dame that he's got on his arm. And uh, back home, Yuko is you know, working on the wig that we see her trimming all the time. And then she checks in on mommy who actually seems like she's doing pretty well. And that's when Yuko discovers bruises on her niece's ankles. And Yuko, uh, asks her, Hey, can I see the rest of you? And then mommy runs off and Yuki, uh, catches her along with Yuko And they find not just bruises, but they find scars on her back. And Yuko tells her roommate, hey, this is clearly my sister because my sister is terrible. Which is, in fact, correct. So, in the meantime, Yamazaki has stolen the body that's what what is growing all the hair. And takes it back to his shitty home on the docks. And his house is just littered with hair that's been fashioned into wigs. And there are awards placards. And I have a suspicion that those awards were created by Yamazaki for Yamazaki, that he didn't really win anything. He's just a weirdo that awarded himself best hair awards. And so he ends up the the body bag that he carried uh, this poor, you know, dead girl back to his shack in. And he uh, once again sees that the hair has grown even more. Meanwhile, the cops show up at the morgue and find the body's gone missing and say they decide to give Yamazaki the business when he shows up to, to work. And when they're talking to him, they're looking at a corpse and it, the, the corpse has its hair all shaved down and Yamazaki gives a little creepy smile and the younger detective grabs him, give, like grabs him by the collar, one of them, and is like, hey, what was that look about, pal? 
And the older detective finally pulls the younger guy off and is like, hey, don't judge people because they're a little creepy. So we cut Yamazaki loose. And uh, but it's still kind of a fun scene because finally somebody is recognizing what a weirdo they have working in the morgue. So anyway, back at uh, Yuko's, uh, Yuko's got to go to work. So she gives mommy, her niece, the business card, uh, her business card and says, hey, lock the door and don't let anybody in. And she bikes to work and is doing the narration thing again where, you know, she's saying like, here's Yuko going to work. And she stops to yell at the sea and says, I'll never give up. You know, like we, we, we can get on board with Yuko. Yuko is a girl with a dream and, and we all love her dearly while she's at work. Kiyomi shows up at Yuko and Yuki's place who are both gone. By the way, this is all left alone. Like poor, poor mommy, this poor little girl left to her own devices and Kiyomi, you know, kind of seduces her daughter into opening the door. Like, you know, it's your mother. Don't you want to, don't you want to see me? Don't you want to give me a hug? And as soon as the door opens, Kiyomi just pushes past her kid and starts going through all of Yuko's shit. Like goes through her clothes and, and starts stealing some of those and steals a soda from the fridge. And Yuki comes home. And it's like, hey, what are you doing here? You need to get out. And instead of leaving, as she's been asked, Kiyomi just breaks like a, a, a cup that she has. And that's when Yuko finally comes home to see this whole scene unfolding at the dinner table. And Kiyomi says finally that she'll go and starts to take mommy with her. And Yuko is not cool with this at this point. Now that she's seen bruises and scars, she's like, nope. She is not going anywhere with you. And she says that Kiyomi has been bullying, bullying Yuko, her, for years. And now she has turned that bullying onto Mommy. But Kiyomi, not to be outdone, drops a bomb uh, information-wise and lets us all know that Yuko had an abortion not too long before because she wasn't ready to have a child. But it's something that's haunted Yuko, as it does, you know? I mean, it's a big decision. And you don't want your older sister really jabbing it to you over that either. So Yuko does get her clothes back, threatens to call the cops. Finally, Kiyomi leaves. She heads back to her sleazy guy, while Yuki and Yuko are working to cheer Mommy up, and they say that, hey, you can live with us for a while. And... Poor mommy. It's so sad. She says, I just can't be a good girl. And that's why mom hit me. And it, you see in this character, like this pattern of abuse. And there's a lot of talk of women being abused in, in this film and not in the usual Japanese horror movie way where it's like, look, this is unfortunate. We've all just got to pinch our noses and get through it. No, no, no. Sono is actually cl more clever than that uh, because both Yuko, who has been abused uh, by her older sister and is also uh, somewhat given the business by some of the girls at the salon or whatever. But we have her, we have mommy who is being uh, abused in the same way that Yuko was in fact, by the same person and is kind of a shattered person as a result of it. And then you further have the girl we found 
in the container, in the shipyard container, who's growing all the weird hair, who clearly was uh, abused. And so we have our three main female characters in the film, essentially, not including Yuki, who kind of falls away at a certain point in the film. Um, but the three main female characters are all victims of some kind of abuse, one of whom has survived it, like Yuko's gotten out of it. Mommy is still in it, or or just out of it. And then you have uh, the girl in the container, in the shipping container, who was unable to escape it. And it's sort of this spectrum of survival in a way. It's really interesting and, and certainly not unintentional. You know, the, the movie kind of comes around to that point. Uh, so anyway, let's get back to Yamazaki speaking of weird hair. So at that shack, the hair is growing super fast. It's coming out of every cut, every orifice in this poor dead woman. And then we hear the bell ring. Uh, and Yamazaki has this girl in this weird hammock where the hair is just kind of flowing out and he has these, you know, pretty big, uh, hair shears and, and just keeps hopping around saying like, let it grow, keep growing and growing forever. And then he cuts some of her hair and he whispers to the body, all dirty women have to do something about their filthy hair. So we understand that he, yes, he has this erotic compulsion when it comes to hair, but also he is just a terrible, terrible person uh, and has this view of women that is, is unsettling to say the least. So, but, but does mimic worth pointing out, does mimic the attitudes of the men who eventually we will discover have uh, hurt this girl found in the shipping container. So Yamazaki, now that he's got all this hair that he he's cut off of this poor woman, uh, goes to a salon where he's brought some extensions, some of the titular hair extensions that he's created from the haunted hair coming out of this corpse. And the stylist starts wearing them and gets complimented by one of the customer uh, customers that she's working with. And then we see uh, Yamazaki kind of, screws off because uh, he's got to get back home. Once he goes home, there's kind of this interstitial scene with uh, Yamazaki going home in between what happens to the women at the salon. When he gets home, the hair is going nuts. It's growing all over the place. And Yamazaki says that uh, his, his stolen hair mistress uh, must be angry. And, and so true to that, we cut back to the salon where one of the extensions in the stylus ear uh, creeps into the stylus ear, and she starts to get flashbacks of what happened to our hair girl, where she was kidnapped, she was thrown into a Christmas tree, which is why she has the bell tied to her, and then she's injected before being thrown on a table where strange men shave her hair. And... As we're getting those flashbacks, we're also cutting between that and the stylist who has been infected by the this crazy hair, almost killing her customer a million times with scissors until she finally just drives scissors into her ear. And there's a really nice bit of sound design here where uh, when the camera focuses on the customer, we lose some sound. It's really cool. Anyway, I love Sion Sono. When the customer gets attacked again and she asks why, the stylist then says, because you're a dirty girl. 
And then we get this great shot from outside the salon where a young girl and her mother uh, are passing by. And the girl says, why is everything in that shop all red? It's great. It's a great scene. You, uh, why are you not watching X Day right now? Uh, so <laughs> Yamazaki, after all this falls out, Yamazaki is singing a song about letting uh, the corpse's hair grow. And then he sees a news report about the stylist who's killed herself uh, after killing the customer. And he tells uh, his hair corpse, like, oh, you are so great when you're angry. So now we also learn that the detectives who were uh, on the, the container case are also on this stylist case. And Yamazaki also uh, has gotten a wig for himself. I don't think it's the corpse hair. I think it's just a wig he has. But it, it's crazy. He's in a USA shirt. He's videotaping people just on the street who have nice hair. And then he happens to see Mommy on her way to the salon. Because poor mommy has, uh, once Yuko and Yuki left her work, she starts screwing around with the scissors and the wig that Yuko has been working on and trying to imitate, you know, her older aunt, but she's screwing it all up because she's a kid. So she tries to fix it and she makes it worse and then she starts crying and then she tries to find another head and wig and uh, from the closet and then all those just spill out. So she takes the business card and... She decides she's going to go find Yuko so she can confess her crimes, essentially. And as we see Yamazaki spy mommy and begin to follow her, then we get a quick cut where our hair girl opens her single eye, which is all milky white. And we know shit is about to go down. So Yamazaki shows up with mommy in tow. And saying like, Hey, I found this girl. She had this business card. She was headed here. And then he sees Yuko and more specifically, he sees Yuko's hair and he loses his mind. So when he realizes that everyone is staring at him, he decides to beat feet, but not before saying if all the bitches in the world, I mean, uh, women had hair like yours and then realizes that he said something terrible and then off he fucks. So Yuko and mommy are now taking a taxi home. Like Yuko has to leave work. Uh, she also has to get some shit from the driver because he sees that mommy is afraid that Yuko's going to hit her and is, you know, he's like, Hey lady, don't hit your kid. And she's like, I can't, I didn't do that. So they get inside. Yuko is furious initially. Uh, she doesn't beat the girl which is a plus considering what Kiyomi's been up to her sister. But she does leave mommy at home and says, look, I got to go back to work. Don't touch anything. You stay right here. Don't touch anything. Don't move anything. Don't do nothing. So, uh, then we head back to work with Yuko and go back to Yamazaki's joint, who is tricycling around his shack watching the video of mommy and then Yuko and he gets excited. So he grabs this like bird cage of hair samples and takes all for Yuko salon where he hands out samples to all the workers there. And then he leaves 
And they all say like, yeah, he was really creepy, but look at this hair. It's great. And we see some of the girls like trying the samples and weaving the, the hair extensions in. And while all that's going on, the boss uh, gives Yuko a little bit of business and says like, Hey, you need to get your personal life in order. We can't have this kid showing up all the time being weird and crying. And Yuko's like, I, I got it. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of this. So, uh, we follow the tough girl who has put extensions the tough stylist girl I mentioned earlier. She's put some of the extensions in and she's heading home. So she's showering and gets uh, a, a, a little bit of a cut. And we see that like some of the hair starts washing out uh, like the extension extensions are washing out of her own hair. And, she has this dream where the hair is strangling her later and we see her wake up and she's like, Oh my God, what a horrible dream and goes to the bathroom and then sees a little bit of a hair poking out of her lower eyelid, which is always disturbing. And so she starts pulling and she keeps pulling and pulling. And then finally it comes out. But now she sees that there's a hair growing out of the cut that uh, she made in her finger. And so she starts tugging that and another long strand comes out and finally pulls that free. And now she sees this cut on her arm and she hears a bell, not unlike a Christmas bell, you might say. And she passes out and when she comes to, she seems fine, but then she opens her mouth and there's hair all over her tongue and she starts to pull at the hair that's coating her tongue. And then we see hair rolling across her eyeballs as if it's being pulled, you know, out of her mouth. It's crazy. It's a really cool effect. Uh, who knew haunted hair could be so much fun. And then we, uh, in, in the midst of all this, uh, we also hear, uh, we also go back to, Yuko's house and we see that she has taken one of these extensions home and also mommy has cleaned up everything. She did a great job. She also is in dire need of a therapist, but, uh, Yuko bought her some shirts on the way home. Like every, everybody's being cool at her place. Everything seems to be going well. And, then we cut to the shack where Yamazaki is watching the hair corpse spit more and more hair out, even as our tough girl stylist is still fighting against this hair that has gotten in. It's, it's a real body horror kind of thing. So uh, she is continuing the flashbacks to what happened to our our poor sad girl's fate, the the hair girl. And who woke up after being shaved, tries to run. She is, of course, raped. Uh, but, you know, it is a Japanese horror film. And as, as she's... the As the tough girl stylist, whose name I probably should have made note of, but she's only in the movie to do this. Uh, so she is kind of staggered by these visions she's having... But the good thing is, 
it seems like there's no more hair coming out of any cuts. There's nothing in her mouth. Everything's cool, right? Until the hair just whips out, grabs the ceiling, lifts her off of the ground, and then drops her. And then we hear Silent Night play again. And then hair pours out of her eyes and mouth and spills all over the floor. And there's Tough Girl is not answering her phone anymore. So poor Tough Girl. Uh, she has probably the coolest death in the movie, though. You, If you see this movie for no other reason, watch it for that scene. So next day, Yuki is off dancing. Uh, Kiyomi shows up at Yuko's again where her daughter mommy is left alone once more and once more Kiyomi is trying to get into this house that mommy has been told don't let your mother in here your mother's a nightmare but it's her mother and she does open the door and as soon as the door is open in like a whirlwind comes Kiyomi knocking shit over grabbing Yuko's checkbook of all things and when she starts to take off, mommy, mommy, the daughter says, Hey, that's all Yuko's. And Kiyomi smacks mommy for bringing that up and then grabs all the shit she stole and then takes mommy with her. So we followed them to Kiyomi's boyfriend's place who we've seen at the bar a couple of times. And he is just a real dirt ball. And he's complaining about how nobody's got manners anymore and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, they decide to instill manners in mommy. Why not just kick her for a bit? And so she does, and then shoves her under some shelving and says like, you stay there. That's where you belong out of sight, out of mind. And they're going through all the shit that Kiyomi stole, uh, with, from Yuko's place, which does include one of the hair extensions. And then, the boyfriend lays down on the extension, but when he moves again, it's kind of stuck to his arm and he's tugging at it and they're kind of laughing about it. Not really sure what's going on. And then the hair explodes outward, just carving up the floor. And we see mommy's view from inside the cubby where she's hiding as hair flutters outside. And then Kiyomi flies into the cubby and says, no peeking idiot. And then gets snatched away, and the room goes black. So, uh, Yuko comes home to find the place a wreck. You, uh, she calls Yuki, and Yuki's like, I don't know what's going on, but Mommy's not home, and the place is a mess. And poor Mommy has come out of hiding in you know her mother's boyfriend's place. And there's this great little detail where there is a metronome that has been knocked over, that is swinging, so there's this underlying beat to the whole scene, providing like true legitimate rhythm to it. And the place is naturally erect. There are strands of hair all over the floors and the wall. Uh, mommy kicks over the the metronome, which makes her freeze because she's like, "Uh, what if this hair comes for me? What if the hair can hear? I don't know the rules." So she's creeping along the wall, just terrified. And around a corner, she sees a door swinging open and closed. And then she accidentally kicks a Close Encounters police car, which lights up and goes driving into the dark, where it lights the, the sirens of this little toy car, light a literal mountain of hair along with a dead Kiyomi. 
And the hair comes after her, right? It's almost like the thing where it's whipping around. But Mommy jumps from the balcony of the apartment into a bush below and escapes. And so she's taken to the hospital and Yuko catches up with her there. And finally, the detectives are there waiting. uh, And she's able to identify her sister's body at the same hospital. And they're like, look, there's something fishy going on with all this hair business. Uh, Mommy wakes up and Yuko says, hey, what happened? What, you know, what did this? And she says, it was a monster. A hair monster killed my mommy. And the younger cop, uh, the one who gave uh, Yamazaki the business earlier, a guy named Tamura, says he thinks that this is all linked because of that very hair. And we get a shot of uh, Yamazaki singing his hair song. Only this time there's musical accompaniment. And there's this whole montage where we see Yamazaki dancing and singing, sometimes in arm and leg warmers like Olivia Newton-John, while we also see bodies being photographed. Like bodies are piling up around the city. So the next time we see everyone back at the salon, everyone's in black because they, they're mourning the tough girl. Um, Kondo, that's her name. Kondo is her name. Anyway, sorry. Diversion. But they're, they decide that they're still going to have this like uh, hair exhibition the next day or whatever. Uh, it's a big thing that that's what Yuko's been practicing on the head dummy and all that stuff. So uh, Yuko... Uh, decides that she's going to give one of the mannequin heads that she's got with all the hair to Mommy, who, you know, we last saw getting in trouble for ruining all of Yuko's shit. But Yuko is uh, feeling a little bit more maternal, and that's where, you know, ultimately this story is headed, of course. So uh, she's telling this story as she gives Mommy, you know, this head and the wig and his showing her a little bit of how to cut hair. And she says, you know, when I was uh, a kid, I loved going to the salon with my mom. I was fascinated by this stylist. And and it's noteworthy, I think, that in the flashback that Yuko has here, where she's thinking back on her mother and and her mother's stylist, uh, the stylist is a guy, you know. I mean, most of the characters in in this film are female. But I don't think there's a, a, anything being said about gender there. Um, at any rate, so she's saying, you know, she loved going with her mom because the stylist could take anyone and make them look beautiful. She made made her mother look beautiful. And it's a really nice scene between uh, Yuko and mommy, and, and we start to feel the bond between them. And the next day at the big exhibition, Yuko decides you know what, I'm going to do mommy's hair because, you know, the style that she was working on got ruined when mommy went to town with the scissors. So she's going to use mommy as her own kind of test subject. And uh, she's going to give a style to uh, her niece the same way that her mother got one. And Yuki's there for support. And it's all going well. Uh, She does notably use some of the haunted extensions on mommy here. And 
at that point, we know like, all right, we're we're closing up shop here, yeah, movie wise. Like we're we're getting all the pieces in place. Uh, mommy is now in in danger because of of the hair extension. Um, the the detectives show up and they're like, hey, we got to call this little exhibition off. We got to you know we got to ask questions. We got dead bodies everywhere. But everyone stops to watch Yuko finish styling mommy. And when they're done, everyone applauds and mommy loves it. And it, it's a nice, again, a nice moment where we reemphasize the relationship that's grown between these characters. And also the fact that Yuko has in fact become a, a very good stylist, but the detectives start asking about all these hair extensions and, uh, Yuko starts to put all this together but in the meantime, Yuki has taken off with mommy to take her home because, hey, she doesn't have to stick around to talk to the, these detectives. But uh, mommy is cutting hair and, uh, you know, with the dummy that uh, Yuko gave her while Yuki is just, you know, doing Yuki stuff, dancing and whatnot. And then hair starts spilling out, uh, out of the phone. And lifting off of the lint roller. And sh like shit is going crazy behind him. Like they don't see it yet. But hair is going nuts. And mommy cuts the extension on uh, the mannequin. And sees that the hair bleeds. Which is the first time I, I think we've seen this. And it is notable later. Uh, so Yuki sees all the hair growing. And very calmly, because Yuki is an awesome character, and don't you ever forget it, she takes Mommy to a bedroom and closes the door, but the hair still gets in, and it's all over the place. And so Yuki tells Mommy to run as the hair swarms around Yuki, and Mommy just passes out. Yuki is suspended in midair. Yuko finally shows up, and the door's locked. When she finally gets in, it's just all hair. Like she has to push her way, literally push through hair to get into her home. Meanwhile, of course, the radio is playing silent night and she sees that mommy's unconscious. Yuki's in, you know, crazy hair bondage. Uh, then Yuko starts to cut the hair on mommy to get her free, but the hair grabs her and chokes her out. And at this point, Yamazaki shows up. And says, tells the hair, no, 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 let these two go, meaning Mommy and Yuko. Well, while he's there collecting Mommy and Yuko, the detectives actually show up at Yamazaki's shack. So they find the hair. They also find the body. And as they're about to try to remove the body, the hair jumps at them. And so there's business. And Yamazaki, uh, we cut away from that to Yamazaki, who's driving home in his, there's no other way to put it, folks. It's a hair mobile. And he's kidnapped Mommy and Yuko. And when he gets home, he's kind of dragging them in. And he finds the cops. And he starts ranting against them. And they're kind of tied up in hair. So he's railing against the police and punching the cops in the face. And he kind of beats the shit out of Tamura the younger guy, and then he chokes the older detective. And then he says uh, to Yuko and Mommy, you can stay with me now because we're all bound by hair. 
we all love it. And then he sticks out his tongue and we see that he's got hair all over his tongue, which Yuko then grabs and yanks his tongue. What can only be described as comically long. And this is where the movie descends into utter madness. Like everything up till now has been somewhat subdued. Like this is the mainstream horror movie that I think everyone wanted. But in these final few minutes of the film, Sono decides he's going to have himself a good time and not necessarily stick to the rules of Japanese horror films, which in this scenario would dictate that there's this curse that it will either be transferred or whatever. And and the, it's it's probably worth mentioning, this goes back to the idea of the um, the yurei uh, that we talked about in, in movies like Juan, the, the spirit that is uh, is horribly wronged as this girl was and be, she becomes a vengeful spirit. And, and, and so that's what this girl is. Uh, so normally in those films, you know, nobody wins, you know, it's just things are horrible and maybe we'll be okay at some point in the future. And so no, it wraps things up a little neater. I think, um, when, when Yuko grabs the tongue and pulls it like two feet out of this guy's head, and then lets it go and it snaps back and all that stuff. It's it's very silly and it, it's almost Looney Tunes-ish. But, I, I and I'll admit to you, it's not my favorite part of, of the movie. Like, I like it when it's more normal, uh, for lack of a better term, when talking about a movie about haunted hair extensions. I don't necessarily care for the slapstick nature of this, but I do think it's incredibly interesting that Sono as a filmmaker decided... No, 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 let's diffuse all the tension that I've worked to create with these kind of silly moments. Yuko and Yamazaki uh, end up kind of fighting, and Yuko cuts his neck with some scissors, which just explodes with hair. And Yamazaki then comes at Mommy with scissors of his own, and he cuts her hair, which begins to bleed. So the thing that I find so great about this is that in this moment, we understand that mommy is, if she were to die, she would become a vengeful spirit that she is, uh, another victim, much like our hair girl was, and that someone's got to step in, uh, someone's got to stop this. And Yuko has begun that process, but now Yamazaki is yet another person trying to abuse her. And we see that if he is successful, he's going to have not one, but two Yurei on his hands, uh, by all accounts. And behind him, though, the hair begins raising up Michael Myers-like. And it's the, the hair that has been inside Yamazaki starts to pour out of his face and then his eyes, and then out of his fingernails, and he's just shooting hair out of every possible orifice. And then he screams, Ecstasy! So Yuko grabs Mommy and runs out of there. He starts to, Yamazaki starts to chase them, because he's not completely dead yet. But the hair has him, and then lets him go long enough to whip two strands across the doorway which as he runs, sever his head and his feet. At which point his head lands on his feet and he wobbles around 
uh, like a cartoon character. And then we see the hair girl who has risen up in the background lie back down and the bell drops from her hand and all the hair that has been coating this shack retracts into her wounds. And our last shot of this girl uh, is in the hammock, unbruised, has normal hair, and is actually quite lovely. And uh, the final scene of the movie is, after all this nightmare is over with, we see a nice shot of uh, Yuko and Mommy just going to the beach and being a family. And it's surprisingly optimistic, but also it it satisfies the theme of the film, right? Which is, this is a movie all about women trying to survive the people who are doing their level best to destroy them. And as I said, the hair girl, unfortunately did not survive it. She finally destroys the last man that had abused her. And now that he's gone, she can rest easy. Mommy is still somewhat on the brink. I think when we leave this movie, she is not, a possessed spirit. Uh, certainly she's still alive and all, but it's going to take some time. Like she's got, she has to heal the wounds that have put her in this position, uh, of, of potentially being a, a vengeful spirit, even though this is nothing that's explicitly stated in the film. I don't think that you can discount the fact that the only two people in the film whose hair bleeds is our hair girl and mommy both of whom who uh, who have been um, horribly, horribly beaten at times. And and so that's it. That's kind of the, the, the story of X-Day, uh, the plot of the film, as it were. And, it, and it's a tremendous film. And Sion Sono is a wonderful director. He has a great eye. Um, it, it, it's worth watching. But I also think that what's interesting about a movie like this, like Juwan is just kind of scary, right? And you can uh, argue that something like The Ring um, has some deeper subtext and, and, and so forth. And I, I don't think that's wrong. Uh, but at its heart, it's kind of a sci-fi horror story, really. Um, it's more about the plot than it is about the characters. And I would say that what makes Sonos films different from other Japanese horror films is that he is far more interested in the characters and the themes that he is exploring than the horror itself, even though he does that surprisingly well. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit, uh, about where Sono is now and, and, uh, what I think is a good reason to continue to watch Sono's films. Uh, and then, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. But first, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for your first visit to, the G spot. Hey everybody. Welcome back. This is Bo Ransdell and I'm court psyops and you found the G spot. Welcome back everybody. This time around, we are talking about Godzilla's second outing in his, uh, Kaiju, uh, free for all, uh, Godzilla raids again. Out just one short year after the original Godzilla, uh, which came out in 1954, Godzilla Reads Again, hits the theaters in 1955, directed by Motoyoshi Oda, 
who uh, apparently did no other work in the Godzilla franchise. The story is by Shigeru Kiyama, uh, who you may recall as uh, the creator of Godzilla for all intents and purposes. This is written by Shigeaki Hideka, uh, who did not appear to work any further in the Godzilla franchise, but is also co-written by Takeo Murata, uh, who was one of the screenwriters on the original film. So elements of the original running through this movie, it is, uh, for all intents and purposes, a direct sequel to the original Godzilla, involving a second Godzilla, warned about in the first one. Uh, uh, Corey, you may remember they said, hey, quit setting off all them bombs. And then nobody did uh, cut it out. So <laughs> their failure to bring about the end of nuclear weapons has resulted in not only raising another Godzilla, but also a foe for Godzilla and Anguirus. And they are on the same level for strength at the start of the film as it appears. Yeah, we're uh, we're starting this movie right. We have a couple of uh, plane spotters for a fishing company uh, out and about on their uh, their job. Uh, one of them has a little plane trouble, ends up crash landing, landing on a small island. By the time uh, he is rescued by his friend Sokioka, Sokiaka, sorry, Sokioko, uh, Yoko Ono, um, he is, in fact, uh, has found the lair of this new Godzilla. Uh, unfortunately, as you mentioned, Godzilla is not alone. He is with Anguirus who appears to be an Ankylosaurus. Uh, that will be confirmed later in the film. But uh, what we're dealing with here, Court, we got ourselves a four-legged dog monster uh, fighting Godzilla. Now, it seems to me, Godzilla, he may not have the reach, in fact, has almost no reach. But he's got the tail, he's got the fire breath. How does uh, Anguirus even stand a chance in this matchup? Well, first of all, Anguirus's shell is covered in very deadly spikes, kind of hard to get a hold of him, and he uses that to his advantage. He also has a tail, which does have a very large bashing-like implement on the end of it, almost like a Stegosaurus, and the shell looks an awful lot like an armadillo, only with more spikes. It's going to be a real matchup for the first battle for Godzilla. Uh, he has never fought another kaiju before. This is the first time out. Uh, the first round goes much as you might expect. There's some tussling. There's some slapping. I think maybe Godzilla called him a few names. But uh, no fire breath in the first round. It's also important to note that Anguirus is willing to throw down at the slightest provocation. He even is looking for a battle at all points. They are more or less the honey badgers of the kaiju universe. He's a scrappy fighter, Court. Nobody's taken that away from Anguirus. Uh, fortunately, our uh, our heroes of the film uh, are managed to escape the island as Godzilla and Anguirus fight and take news back to uh, to their company. Hey, we got a problem. Godzilla's back, and this time, there's company. Court, uh, let's bring in an expert. Uh, Professor Yamane from the first film uh, was basically one of the minds who led us to defeating Godzilla the first time around. Uh, it's natural, it seems to me, that you want to consult him at a time like this. Considering that he is the only scientist left alive to face Godzilla after Sirizawa's 
self <laughs> suicide, it's probably for the best that they consult the only living scientist. It's a good point. Also, the kids love him. Uh, Yamane is popular, uh, no doubt about that. So Yamane uh, is brought in, asked, hey, uh, what's going on with this Angiris cat? Uh, he explains that uh, Angiris is an ankylosaurus uh, brought back to life or released from hiding uh, by continued uh, atomic testing. Also, uh, we got nothing, Court. Yamane is quick to say he has absolutely no solution in stopping Godzilla. Uh, the best he's got is maybe firing some flares and hope those distract Godzilla long enough for everybody to shit their pants and get away. He also offers thoughts and prayers, as those of us in the States know, is completely useless against anything like weaponry, so therefore hopeless against the Godzilla. You got that right. Prayers are complete bullshit, Court. So, uh, after a consultation with Yamane, we enact plan uh, flares. And when Godzilla, in fact, rolls up on Osaka this time, taking a slight detour from Tokyo this time around, do you think uh, being on the road is going to hurt Godzilla's chances? I don't think so. Well, there's not been a building built that Godzilla cannot immediately demolish. There's also not a building he will not willingly destroy for his own gratification. Important to note, however, Osaka is actually going to be the target for a lot of Godzilla's rage in the future. He always gets credit for destroying Tokyo because of the first film, but he barely, very rarely goes back to Tokyo, spends a lot of time destroying Osaka and Osaka Castle. You know, you got to think if you're a citizen of Osaka, that trade's got to make you happy. Uh, oh, well, on one level. On many levels, it's terrible. It's really, really horrible. But, hey, it's Godzilla. It's a tourist attraction. I mean, when he's not there. That is correct. The rebuilding is quite good for the economy. However, the destruction is very bad for the insurance market. Yeah, you got to think Osaka insurance businesses are uh, are basically just a guy named Jeff at this point. Just saying, well, best of luck. So it's are ridiculous <laughs> to live there in Osaka. After after the third Godzilla attack, you got to start thinking to yourself, maybe Osaka isn't the place to raise my family. You don't want to be building another office park there. That's for certain, Poe. Yep, yep. You, uh, eventually, zoning is going to keep everything to one story and lower. Possibly underground and bunker-like. Yep, yep. Bunker's really the future of Osaka. I wish I had a time machine to go back and invest in those now. Um, so, uh, Godzilla does, in fact, roll into Osaka. Uh, we do try to distract him with flares dropped from jets. At first, it doesn't seem to be working, but then Godzilla uh, seems to get real angry at these flares. Uh, Court decides that uh, he's going to give some chase. It's been stated actually earlier in the film that Godzilla hates light, particularly bright lights, because it reminds him of the pain he was subjected to during the atomic testing that awoke in him, possibly from the bright flashes when the bombs go off. Not sure how this logic exactly works, but they're able to use it to their advantage and try and distract Godzilla and lure him away in a direction where he will cause the least amount of harm. Not since Emmett Walsh's uh, crusade against cans in the jerk have we seen such hatred of an inanimate thing you're not wrong bo you're not wrong 
So uh, Godzilla starts to head out to sea following the trail of uh, flares. Unfortunately, uh, a trio of ne'er-do-wells, prisoners, uh, have escaped the clutches of their police captors, stolen a truck, and uh, have done a baby driver around the industrial parks of Osaka until they run into a power station and blow it the fuck up. And as we know, the light will be bringing Godzilla's attention, and giant fires cause a lot of light, Bo. They sure do, Court. Uh, Godzilla is quick to pick up on this fact. Uh, As soon as he sees that big flame, he decides it's time for Osaka to take one more on the chin. Unfortunately, this time around, Godzilla isn't alone. Uh, Angiris has followed him from uh, the remote island uh, all the way to Osaka, and it's here, Court, we're going to get our round two. Angiris is still a bit angry from the first throwdown that they've had. He hasn't quite let it go. He has a temper. He also holds a grudge. This is not going to be pretty, Bo. Sure not, Court, Uh, especially considering Godzilla has so far seemed reluctant to use that atomic breath in a fight like this. You got to think he's uh, just keeping that up his sleeve for when the time is right. Well, you have to remember, too, this Godzilla was only recently woken and doesn't have the benefit of several atomic bombs to charge that power. He may be very low on power and may need to save that for a special occasion. He doesn't want to waste too much energy because if Angiris works him on the ground enough and he uses the atomic breath too early, it's all over for him, Bo. Yeah, he's got one chance out of this. Uh, Fortunately, uh, Angiris is uh, four-legged. He's low to the ground. Uh, Despite his spikes, Godzilla is going for the neck, the one vulnerable spot. Godzilla gets in. He works the neck. He's chewing. He's chomping. uh, Blood is spilling. It really looks like uh, the tide is really turning into uh, Godzilla's favor uh, at this point. And and at the point where Angiris is wounded and bloody and Godzilla gets him onto his back, you got to think that's terrible news for Angiris. That's the last thing he wants. Well, it's an, it's a good thing that Godzilla had actually trained with the Voldemort Daninsky werewolf to know that the neck meats are the tenderest meats to get after. And once Angiris is on his belly, we're talking soft underbelly. It may be delicious, but it's all danger for him to be that way. Yeah, because uh, Godzilla's ready to fire up that barbecue, and everyone's going to be eating Angiris after this. The atomic breath comes fast. It it comes just when Angiris is most vulnerable. Uh, I, I got to tell you, in a moment like this, you almost start to feel bad for Angiris. He just doesn't stand a chance. Well, you know, you're never not you're never going to get the smell of cooked Angiris out of any of the clothes in Osaka from here on out, Bo. That's just the case. Oh, that's how you're going to know they're from Osaka. You run into them and you say, wow, you smell like Angiris. Cooked Angiris can be quite delicious, but at the same time, you can only stand the smell of cooked chicken for so long. Too true, too true. But uh, with Angiris down court... Uh, You might wonder, hey, what are they going to do with the last 30 minutes of this movie? Uh, I was surprised to find that the death of Angiris, really the end of your act two, uh, Godzilla goes on to stomp the ever-living shit out of Osaka, uh, forcing people to evacuate, to flee their homes, 
And uh, I was struck uh, in this film, Court, uh, by the fact that where the the first film seems to be very much uh, a, a film about uh, the horror and uh, horrific uh, effects of something like the bombs dropped at Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki, whereas Godzilla Raids Again seems to focus more on the experience of uh, refugees, of of being suddenly displaced from your home, and also of living in a world where, at a moment's notice, you may be forced to drop everything, grab your family, and get the hell out of there. Uh, in I would say it's maybe not as chilling as the original film, but I was surprised to see that it wasn't content to just retread the same ground and actually had a different take on what Godzilla might represent to these people. Evacuation is always going to just move you where they don't want you to be. It's one of those things that happens in the film. There's a lot of evacuations. Some of them are successful. Some of them are not so successful. You you get a lot of people that end up being moved to a wrong area where Godzilla ends up. You can just never predict the path of a giant monster. Truer words were never spoken, Court. Uh, they're, they're a real catch-as-catch-can in terms of uh, predicting behavior. Uh, so we decide uh, we got to get uh, Godzilla the hell out of here. Um, Osaka and the military of Japan lays into Godzilla with everything they got. We're talking mortars, we're talking tanks, we're talking jets, we're talking machine gun fire. Whatever we got, we are sending it Godzilla's way. Uh, Is any of this going to work? It never has in the past. Can we expect different results with conventional weaponry? More or less, the military is just there in an attempt to try and slow Godzilla down, Bo. They're not going to stop him. They realize that, but they can at least annoy him enough to try and make him change course, or at least to attempt to attack them. These brave men and women know that their lives are on the line, but they're protecting the citizens, Bo, trying to give them a chance to escape, to evacuate, to get out, to be in an area that is known to be safe from Kaiju. And that's all the military is there for. They're just trying to save as many lives as they can, even if they sacrifice their own. Yeah, we're seeing some real heroes here. Everyone's going to remember where they were when uh, Godzilla first came ashore in uh, Osaka. Uh, Fortunately, we do uh, finally uh, get Godzilla out of Osaka. Uh, It really seems in this case he just gets tired of breaking shit, Court. Um, There aren't a ton of plans coming out of the brain trust in Osaka. It's more just hunkering down and hoping uh, Godzilla... Uh, eventually goes away, uh, which he does. And we do have uh, a little bit of downtime as everyone begins to resume life uh, as it was before. You can see it on the eyes of all of the people. They're just happy to be alive, Bo. They're not concerned about the fact that the buildings that they're standing in may not be structurally sound while they're goofing off and talking about the next step in their lives. They're just happy to be alive. So true, and and you got to admire the pluck of immediately beginning to rebuild. There's very little in the way of hand-wringing and sobbing. Uh, It really says something to the spirit of these people that uh, at the end of the day, Godzilla's come in, he's he's ruined lives, he's he's murdered, he's rampaged, and uh, the next day, they are dusting off uh, and and sweeping out the... uh, 
the buildings with gaping, gaping holes in them that no one should possibly be in. It's got to be dangerous. Oh, it certainly is. And, you know, a Godzilla attack or any other kaiju, for that matter, on your city has to be treated like any other natural disaster. You have to move in and you have to immediately start rebuilding. You cannot let the people be evacuees and be refugees for too awful long. You got to get them back in their houses, even if they're not structurally sound, even if the windows aren't there, Bo, you got to get them back in. Yeah, it's a real spirit of uh, let's get on with this. And uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the destruction, we've had to move the uh, shipping company's headquarters from Osaka to uh, Hokkaido. Uh, And it's several months later when uh, a a couple of our returning faces are out on yet another mission uh, after the uh, uh, one of the ships has gone missing uh, in the Hokkaido area Uh, far uh, my understanding, at least far north of Osaka. Not sure about the directionality of where Godzilla is going to be. He may be north. He may be south. For the, that matter of fact, though, he's such a large animal, he can be both north and south at the same time, Bo. Yeah, he can actually exist in two different days. It's crazy. Uh, so Godzilla, uh, it turns out, has sunk another ship, is hanging out on uh, on his wintry island. And uh, basically, there is no plan to destroy him. It's just that we start shooting shit at him and then realize, oh, wait, you can actually just cause an avalanche here. And maybe you you let nature do what man cannot. Well, Godzilla is part lizard and lizards are cold blooded, Bo. Why he's hanging out on an island covered in ice across the top of it, I'm not sure. But it certainly works out great for our heroes. Yeah, Godzilla's got a real chip on his shoulder, really seems to thumb his nose at authority, even if that authority is just weather. Uh, doesn't care for it. So, One of the more endearing qualities of our good Godzilla, sir. Yeah, uh, you got to uh, look in this segment here in the G spot. You are never going to hear us talk ill about uh, our man Godzilla. He's he's always a champion, even if he's not always a champion. Um so Godzilla uh, is being beset uh, by these planes, uh, and finally he decides uh, he's had enough, starts throwing some of that atomic breath around, he's reducing planes to cinders, and, uh, and, and finally the military wises up and realizes we don't shoot at Godzilla, we shoot at the, uh, the, the wall of ice uh, that hovers over him, towers over him, in this crevasse and uh and sure enough the walls court come tumbling down gonna have to happen whenever you cause avalanches it's gonna come down uh so now that godzilla is buried in ice we can wrap up the film uh there are weddings people are smiling people sacrifice themselves it's all very touching more importantly godzilla is frozen as shit uh, under an avalanche of ice, uh, you got to think this ain't going to last, Court. Uh, one hot day, Godzilla's tromping around again. Well, all it's going to take, Bo, is some climate change, and he'll no longer be chilling out there. Very true. Uh, so Godzilla raids again, I found to be a step down 
from the original film. Uh, I think uh, the some of the suit work is, is, looks a little shoddier. Um, it it did not uh, it did not have the weight and gravitas of a Godzilla, and yet uh, there are so many wonderful things about it. It's still a pretty smart movie. Uh, it is still uh, the first time Godzilla fights a monster what wants to eat him. Um, there are a lot of wonderful takeaways from the movie. It's got a, a snappy runtime for all my criticism of it. Uh, I gotta say on the list of Godzilla films we've covered on this show th- thus far, a solid number two. Well, you are correct. It is in fact the second film that we have covered. So therefore it would be just below the first. Yeah. But uh, you know, in terms of quality, I would argue Godzilla is a far superior film to Godzilla raids again, but, uh, there ain't nothing wrong with a little Godzilla raids again. It's very impossible to get yourself an aliens or a Godfather part two. It's pretty improbable. You're going to have that with your second sequel. Yeah, sure enough. But, uh, Next time around, Court, uh, we're going to extend the G-Spot to a full episode. One might say the G-Spot will be swollen and engorged uh, to be an entire episode of Hero Hero Go Show because we're talking about one of the heavy hitters next time around, Court. It's going to be Godzilla versus King Kong. Kind of like any kind of uh, sports competitor fighting against the thing that influenced him and got him started. Godzilla going against King Kong. I mean, that's where he was created was from King Kong. That was the influence. They're going to have to battle it out to figure out who is the biggest, baddest giant monster of all time. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to that fight already, Cord. Uh, I mean, King Kong, he's a monkey. I love monkeys. Uh, my heart is in a lot of ways with King Kong, but Godzilla, he's our hometown hero. Uh, I, I don't know. I, there are so many good and bad things about uh, the upcoming fight. Uh, I'm just glad you're going to be here to to help guide us through it, Court. I, I don't know if I could get through it alone. It doesn't matter who wins, Bo, because in our heart, we're going to have them both be winners. Everyone gets a trophy when King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, Court, would I be spoiling anything to say, hey, it's King Kong versus Godzilla, but it ain't just them? I don't think so, Bo. There's always going to be just a little bit more. Toho tends to ratchet things up every single film, and they don't ever really let up. Oh, I like the sound of that, Court. Uh, Court, thanks for being with us here on the G-Spot. We'll see you next month for one extra special, extra slippery episode. Well, I'm always glad to be here. You know it's always a wonderful thing to find the G-Spot once you're there. So, yeah, a couple of final notes about Sion Sono and X-Day. I would argue that X-Day is as much a parody of standard Japanese horror films as it is a Japanese horror film. Uh, It takes a very silly idea and turns it into something... Kind of artistic at the end of the day. Uh, Sono himself is a, a fabulously interesting director. Uh, there's a movie called Tag that was available on Netflix. Uh, I'm not sure if it is any longer. That is also worth your time. And also contains some of the same sort of feminist themes that we saw in X-Day. It's 
really, really interesting director. Uh, I, I just love Sono to death, and I haven't seen everything because, good lord, how could you? Uh, these guys are cranking out movies all the time. Sono less so. And it, it's also, uh, as a final note about Sono, um, he has said a couple of times he's not terribly interested in making films in Japan anymore. Um, he feels as if the studio structure has turned into a factory that just turns out like manga adaptations all the time, which isn't an unfair criticism. I mean, Miike has done some of those as well. And Sono prefers to do just kind of his own thing. He he's been wanting to do a documentary about the uh, Fukushima uh, nuclear reactor disaster there. Uh, he has discussed uh, other film projects as well. None of which involve him shooting in Japan again, which in some ways, I think it's great for a creative artist to, to feel free wherever he is making films. And uh, on the other hand, it's a shame that the society that has so often rejected Sono, uh, his his films and, and his daring, um, th- has done so at their own peril. That they're, they're losing one of their great filmmakers. And if you don't think he's a great filmmaker, then uh, I dare you to watch... Um, Noriko's dinner table and or love exposure and say that he is not a visionary mind. So um, that's enough about Sono for now. We're going to come back to him. He's just, he's too interesting a director and his movies are too good not to circle back around, but it'll probably be a while before we get back to our, our pal Sion Sono. In the meantime, if you happen to check out any of his films, let me know what you think. Uh, there's going to be an oversized and engorged G-spot uh, for the next entry of Hero Hero Go Show as Court and I join forces to talk about King Kong versus Godzilla, uh, one of one of the staples of the Godzilla series. And hey, hey, listen to this, folks. There's also going to be a bonus episode of Hero Hero Go Show coming in March, uh, which is going to include me and Richard Glenn Schmidt discussing the first two films in the Whispering Corridors series. So we've got a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, thanks for bearing with me. Uh, let me know what you think of the the format change, most certainly. And uh, yeah, hop by the uh, Facebook group page, Hero Hero Go Show, over on Facebook, and come say hello. Uh, we drop some music in there and chat about Asian horror. And uh, I'm also somehow an administrator on a Facebook group called Asian horror movies. So, uh, yeah, drop by there as well. Join up and, uh, and, and check all that stuff out as well. So, uh, one final note, please check out legionpodcasts.com for everything, uh, horror related. Um, if you know, I think we've got like 400, 500 shows on there now, something for everybody, some for everybody except children. I don't think we have any children's shows. But, I mean, probably eventually we will, right? So, uh, that's it, folks. Again, thank you so much for being patient. We got a lot more on the way. And now, how about a little fan-made to take us out? We'll see you next time, everyone.